raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. He has won his fourth Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson. Brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. Store on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Hey, good evening to you. Another edition of Beyond the Bricks. My name is Jay Query. Mike Thompson here as well. Our thanks as always to Eddie Garrison, Sam Fritz for helping us put together this program. A look back at some of the personalities, the history of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And Mike Thompson, who joins me now, as we mentioned to you, probably each and every night, but for those of you that are unfamiliar, he is the true star behind this program because not only does he come up with kind of the rundowns of what we do and work tirelessly to do so, but also sifts through what has to be hours, if not days, if not weeks worth of audio of interviews and broadcasts involving drivers, mechanics, officials, of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway over the years. Mike, good evening to you. And once again, I know you have worked uh, pretty hard to come up with some pretty special audio tonight. Good evening. I, I appreciate, as always, the plaudits. And uh, I'm looking forward to tonight's show because we've got some some really interesting people that we get a chance to talk about tonight. We take a look back tonight at some of the names, faces, voices, topics of the 1950s. We'll begin tonight with a Californian who was born in 1913. Interesting, of course, whenever we hear about some of the drivers of the 50s and realize that they were born around the same time as the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Of course, 1913, a couple of years after Carl Fisher's dream had become reality. But Freddie Agabashian drove in midget cars all the way into his, you know, early into his teens and then into the late 30s began driving and as a matter of fact met a lot of different drivers that he would end up driving with over the course of his racing career the reality is mike i think when we talk about freddie agabashian in the forefront to a lot of people they probably think of him doing what we are doing talking into a microphone as opposed to driving a race car yeah i think that's correct and that's one of the reasons why i picked him for tonight's show is i think it gets a little bit lost because he was so well known doing the driver analyst stuff that he did with sid i think it gets a little bit lost the fact that the guy sat on the pole for the indianapolis 500 that's pretty important pretty impressive accomplishment i think and he sat on the pole driving a cummins diesel special which is one of the more famous cars over the course of the history certainly engine manufacturers at indianapolis he qualified for his first race in 1947 And in that year, he finished in the top 10. As a matter of fact, finishing ninth place in his first race. That would be his third best finish amongst the 11 races in which Freddie Agabashian would run. But perhaps no moment was better than in 1952 when he started on the pole. Now, he only lasted 71 laps in that race before a supercharger gave way for him. But Freddie Agabashian sitting really at that time at the creme de la creme position in the world of motorsports, the pole position at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And again, we oftentimes heard him as a driver analyst, perhaps interviewing other drivers 
But in 1952, Tom Carnegie, who at that point was six years into becoming the public address chief announcer at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, also would do interviews with drivers to promote the race and get people prepared for the race. He did exactly that with the pole sitter, Freddie Agabashian, in 1952. Tom Carnegie at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, where the 36th annual 500-mile race will be run on May 30th. Our guest right now is Freddie Agabation of Albany, California, who will drive the Cummins Diesel Special, entered by the Cummins Engine Company of Columbus, Indiana. Fundamentally, Freddie, how does your new car compare with the conventional gasoline-powered cars that you've driven on your five previous experiences here at the race? Uh, Tom, this car is, of course, a fuel-oil-burning automobile. Uh, it's unlike the alcohol-burning Offenhausers. Uh, of course, you know that the uh, fuel oil used in this will be a standard mobile oil that you can buy at your mobile stations, and uh, it runs about 13 and a half cents per gallon, as against the alcohol that the other cars burn at a dollar ten cents a gallon. And of course, in ignition, uh, we eliminate the use of spark plugs due to the oil injectors, fuel oil injectors. Uh, being a compression ignition type of an engine. Now, in 1950, Cummins had a diesel at the track, and didn't you take some practice spins in that car and get a little bit acquainted with uh, the mechanical methods behind its construction? Yes, I did, Tom. I ran uh, uh, quite a few miles here this last year with that Cummins car. Mm -hmm. Say, it looks uh, a little larger and possibly heavier than most of the other cars at the track, Freddie. Is that true? Yes, it is a bit heavier, but it has uh, plenty of power. And, of course, uh, as you know, it's only about 29 inches in height. Mm, that's amazing. How uh, come it's so low, Freddie? Well, the lowness is uh, due to the uh, horizontal installation of an engine in the car, uh, allowing the uh, height uh, to be at a minimum height. And, uh, of course, uh, in that horizontal engine installation, the weight is shifted to the left side of the car as well. Now, what's that going to do for you? Well, uh, that in turn is going to load the wheels on the left side, increasing uh, tire wear on the left side, decreasing it on the right side. Now, we've had the car in the wind tunnel at the University of Wichita and uh, have run full-scale tests in the wind tunnel there. Mm -hmm. Now, what was the purpose of those particular tests at the University of Wichita? Well, the tests uh, primarily prove the aerodynamics of the car, decreasing vacuums and pressures under the car, as well as uh, the aerodynamics on the upper part of the car as far as the horsepower uh, absorption was concerned. Well, now, let's go back to the designing and the streamlining of this car. It is certainly one of the finest jobs of streamlining I've ever seen at the Speedway. How would you describe it, Freddie? That's going to be a hard one to describe. You've got to see the machine to appreciate it. <laughs> In other words... It is very low, uh, flat. It, it does, uh, oh, resemble a lake job more than it does uh, a speedway car from the standpoint of streamlining. What I mean by that, like a Salt Lake or a Bonneville job for world records. Now, Freddie, last year you were one of six drivers who qualified at better than 135 miles an hour. And, uh, you know, the uh, time trials, the first day of them, May the 17th, and uh, you're going to be interested in qualifying speeds again this year. What do you think your qualifying speed will be this year? Well, frankly, I believe it'll take about 134 miles an hour. 
to make the race, and I'll, I'll be happy if I make the starting field in excess of the speed I ran last year. Best of luck to you, Freddie Agabation, in that new Cummins Diesel special. And we'll be seeing you on May the 17th, and of course, on May the 30th at the 500-mile race in Indianapolis, Indiana. My apologies. Obviously, that was before the poll run. I was thinking it was a, a poll reaction. But nonetheless, pretty cool to hear, hear from Freddie Agabation talking with Tom Carnegie. And that Cummins diesel, there's a strong, strong history, Mike, over the years, of course, with that engine manufacturer in the Indianapolis 500. I mean, Cummins has a great history at the Speedway. I mean, uh, more recent fans would probably remember them as the you know sponsor on Al Senior's car in 1987. But uh, great, great history going back decades, uh, the Cummins company. But uh, I really, anytime you can get Freddie Agabation's voice on the show, you have to do it because he has such a distinctive voice. And, uh, you know, just I I still, I, I know I told the story about a year ago, but uh, it's still one of the great highlights of my life is the fact that he broke my sunglasses at the Speedway. It's still one of the highlights, even though I had brand new sunglasses and he broke them, I thought it was one of the coolest things in the world that Freddie Agabation had broke my sunglasses. Did you keep the two different parts of the sunglasses? I actually did for a while. Yeah. I kept the, the broken to, right? sunglasses until I think somebody, I think my first wife thought it was stupid to throw them out or something. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Freddie Agabation started 11 Indianapolis 500s. Interestingly enough, he was running only at the completion in four of those 11 races. However, in the disqualifications, if you will, the DNFs that he accumulated, only once was it a driver issue. 1955, he spun. The rest of them, it was all an issue with the car itself that would expire Freddie Agabation. He is a member of a couple of different Hall of Fames, including, of course, that at the uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway Hall of Fame, the National Midget Auto Racing Hall of Fame as well. Agabation retired in 1958. He passed away at the age of 76 in 19. 19- 89. Uh, he is not the only driver that became kind of synonymous with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway over the course of the 50s. There are a few names, Mike, in reality that have resonated more through generations and for decades, like the name Bettenhausen at Indianapolis. Well, that's right. And I mean, this this guy was one of the the guys when you're talking about the the drivers that people know and uh, so, so beloved by fans. I mean, an incredible fan favorite, signed a lot of autographs, uh, just loved by the fans. And and it carried on, you know. I mean, one of the big disappointments, I think, for a lot of people was that Gary, you know, Gary was leading the 72-500, dominating the race, and that he didn't end up winning that 72-500 because I think a lot of people really wanted to see the Bettenhausen name on the Borg Warner Trophy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Gary Bettenhausen, and then, of course, you obviously have the son, Tony Bettenhausen. Melvin Tony Bettenhausen, though, was the father of those two, as well as Merle Bettenhausen, who was injured in a race and never raced or made a qualifying attempt, I should say, uh, in Indianapolis, but still is one that you can see around the Indianapolis area and a very fun personality. But the father, Melvin Tony Bettenhausen, started in 1946 at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and would run... 14 races over the course of his racing career. He also sat down in 1952, just like Freddie Agabashian had done with uh, Tom Carnegie. Tony Bettenhausen sat down with Sid Collins. Mike, preview for us what we're about to hear Tony Bettenhausen talking about. 
Yeah, this is another one of those, uh, you know, previews where, uh, you know, Tom Carnegie would send these, they would send the discs out from the Speedway to get people interested. And, you know, they would try to get an interesting cross section. They would try to get some officials and they would try to get some of the real marquee names if possible. And, you know, this was a great opportunity to get Tony Bettenhausen to talk about the race. So this is Tony Bettenhausen talking about the 1952 race and his prospects. This is Sid Collins at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, where the 36th annual 500-mile race will be run on May 30th. Our guest today is national champion Tony Bettenhausen of Tinley Park, Illinois. Tony has participated in five previous Indianapolis races. He also ranks among the all-time top-flight drivers on dirt tracks. Tony, I believe you won eight of the 12 championship races run on dirt tracks last season. Is that right? That's correct, Sid. What do you think was the toughest race you uh, encountered last year? Well, the toughest race I drove last year was the 100-mile uh, national championship event at Langhorne, Pennsylvania, because that's a round racetrack, and uh, uh, at that point, you, uh, when you're driving on that type of track, rather, you uh, are uh, busy at all times. You don't have any time to relax your arms, and uh, it was about 106 degrees that day. You feel dizzy when you get out of the car? No, but uh, the uh, heat is uh, uh, very... Uh, uh, difficult to uh, overcome. As bad as your Mexican road race, Tony? <laughs> well, much worse than that, believe me. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Tony, from a driver's standpoint, what are the principal differences between dirt track racing and our big 500-mile event here in Indianapolis? Well, here at Indianapolis, uh, Sid, you drive uh, your automobile uh, the same with the same... Uh, uh, respect is driving down the highway. Uh, you don't want to do any skidding on the turns because at the speed you're traveling, you can't do any skidding. Now on the dirt, you uh, drive with your throttle. In other words, uh, the harder you press down on the throttle, the more horsepower you apply to the rear wheels and drive in a sliding motion. So therefore, the uh, that is the difference. And uh, naturally, I have always preferred the dirt because I've done a lot more of it. Well, Tony, last year you caused considerable ex excitement to us out here at the track when you spun on the southwest turn. What caused that spin? Well, it wasn't that I intended to, but I was following Mike Nasrick very closely, and he was running in second place. Mike was towing me and uh, helping me along about four or five mile an hour better than I could ordinarily run. And uh, he ran out of fuel directly in front of me. I was about six feet away from him at the time. I had to uh, pull brakes to keep from uh, bumping into him and therefore uh, went into a slide and... Uh, that was uh, the end of the race for me that day. Well, we hope you have better success this year. In fact, what car are you driving this year, Tony? Well, I'm driving the Bellinger Special, car number 99, that was driven by Lee Wallard in last year's 500-mile race. And uh, I hope I can uh, come back and uh, do as well as he did last year. Well, you have a real record to equal. In fact, do you think that Lee Walter's race record will be broken this year? And how about Walt Faulkner's qualifying record? Well, the qualifying record, I'm sure, will be broken. And I think that uh, there'll be cars that will reach 140 miles an hour out here in qualifications. On the uh, distant, uh, for the 500 miles... Uh, 126.244 for Lee Wallard. Uh, there were only eight cars running, and I'm sure that there'll be many more cars running this year. If there are, the record will not be broken. But in the event that there aren't, I'm sure that the record will be broken. Well, Tony, if you can't win the national title again and the 500-mile race, which would you rather win? Well, I would prefer to win Indianapolis because uh, I won the national title last year, and uh, therefore I would prefer uh, winning out here at the Speedway. And if I do win at the Speedway, I'm going back out to win the national title for the second year in a row. 
Well, Tony Bettenhausen, with the time trial scheduled to start May 17th here at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, what speed do you believe is necessary to make sure of winning one of those 33 coveted starting positions? Well, I don't think that we'll have a car starting in that race that doesn't uh, attain the speed of 133.6 miles an hour. Well, thank and, you very uh, much, Tony Bettenhausen. Our time is up. We've been talking to the national champion from Tinley Park, Illinois, racing this year at the 500-mile race in Indianapolis. Be sure to be in Indianapolis for the time trials on May 17th and May 18th, May 24th and May 25th, and race day, May 30th. Mike, they must have had a hard out on those interviews, right? A lot of times you hear them, they're ready to, to get out at, at the end of them. So, no, I think that's the case. But it's interesting to hear him talk about the, the Ballinger Special because in 51, he had the opportunity to drive the Ballinger Special, which Lee Wallard won the race in. He decided not to drive it, and Wallard won the race. And then Bettenhausen drove it the rest of the year and won the national championship. But if he would have drove it in the 500, he might have won the 500 that year. So, he he uh, had an opportunity, and it, and it slipped through his fingers, unfortunately, I think, in 1951 there. Ultimately, Tony Bettenhausen, of course, with a very decorated career over the course of his USAC career, and then, of course, at the Indianapolis 500, as we talked about, you know, a veteran of numerous races. I recall, Mike, when Gary Bettenhausen started very high up in the 1991 race and Paul Page in the legendary Delta Force intros saying – this may be the day that Gary Bettenhausen fulfills his father's legacy. There was always that dream to be able to try to get that elusive Bettenhausen win, not just for, of course, Gary Bettenhausen and for Tony Bettenhausen, the sons, but for their father, whose best finish was a second-place finish in 1955. Tony Bettenhausen, of course, would ultimately be fatally injured on May 12th, 1961 in a crash at Indianapolis, for that matter, while testing. When we come back, we will continue to look at some of the names and faces. I guess we won't be looking at the names, but hearing from them, certainly, of those from 1950s, the 1950s, and one of the classic commercials from Sid Collins on the other side as well. This is Beyond the Bricks on 93.5, 107.5 The Fan. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Now stay tuned for the greatest spectacle in racing. You can win yourself a whole year of wonderful eating in Stark and Wetzel's big 500-mile race contest. Just list the drivers you think will finish first, second, and third in this year's race. Attach a label or facsimile from any Stark and Wetzel meat product. Mail your entry to me, Sid Collins, Station WIBC, Indianapolis. The winner with the closest correct answer, with the earliest postmark, receives a 12-pound box of delicious Stark and Wetzel meats every single month for an entire year. And there are 24 other big prizes, too, including delicious Stark and Wetzel steaks and hams. So hurry and send in your guests of the drivers you think will finish first, second, and third in this year's 500-mile race. 
Enclosed is talking what's a label or facsimile. Mail to Sid Collins, WIBC, Indianapolis. Put the word contest on the envelope. Enter as often as you like. Just enclose the stocking what's a label with every entry. Contest closes midnight, May 29th. Decision of judges is final. Your guests for the first, second, and third place finishers in this year's race. And congratulations to whoever knew that it would be Jimmy Bryan. Would you like to guess second and third in 1958, Mike Thompson? I can do second, uh, George Amick. Correct. Uh, was third, uh, Johnny Boyd? You are correct. As a matter oh, of fact, pretty good off the top of my head. we're going to check your uh, when you got your letter in, and then we will send you that year's supply of meat. That seems like a lot of work to go through all of those entrants that would have been sent to Sid Collins at WIBC, right? I would have been excited to win a year's supply of trophy loaf or old-fashioned loaf. Or <laughs> Well, I got news for you. Somebody might have won exactly that. And as a matter of fact, one of the drivers that they might have been hoping or anticipating would have been doing well if it had been an earlier race of course would have been the driver that is the second in our subject of the 1950s you may go back a little bit earlier to the first half of the decade to find the racing career and i always smile because of the fact that we have mentioned on this program and i don't want to to get too far into personal in you know interactions if you will But Bob Jenkins, who was the dearest of dear human beings that anybody could ever meet. Mike, I know I speak for you in saying that my life was enriched by being able to get to know Bob Jenkins in the years that professionally we crossed paths and then became friends. And during Bob Jenkins' journey, once he was diagnosed with brain cancer and worked his way through all that is a part of that journey, one of the questions that he had asked for family and friends that they asked him to make sure that he still had all of his wits about him. And it's one question that he never failed to answer correctly through the entire journey was who was the pole sitter in the 1955 Indianapolis 500 mile race. And that answer was Mike Jerry Hoyt. Jerry Hoyt is indeed the correct answer. Jerry Hoyt started in 1955 at the very front of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. That race, he would actually finish 31st. He had an oil leak. But he's a driver that is one of those that was only there for a handful of years, four of them to be exact. But nonetheless, even in those four years, Mike, I think clearly, as evidenced by the fact that Bob Jenkins had that affinity for him, he is one whose driving style and maybe, if you want to call it that, bum luck at times made him a fan favorite. I think there's no question about that. And and what's interesting about this interview is a couple of things. One is uh, I had never heard Jerry Hoyt speak until I found this clip. And so I thought that was pretty interesting. I, I said I'd never heard Jerry Hoyt's voice. But you mentioned that, that poll in 1955. I think we've talked about this briefly before. But uh, he won the poll because he kind of went against the wishes of the other drivers, including Tony Bettenhausen. They had an, a, kind of an agreement on pole day of 1955 because the wind was so bad, they weren't going to go out. The drivers had basically had talked about it and said, hey, we're not going to go out and, and risk anything in this wind because it's so bad. And nobody told Jerry Hoyt. He wasn't part of that agreement. So they pushed the car out there. He went out there, and they were all like, wait a minute, what about the agreement? And he's like, well, what agreement? I'm not part of any agreement. And he went out there and put the car on the pole. And then suddenly, you know, the other guys are starting to push their car out there because they realize, okay, well, now Jerry Hoyt's got the pole. We better get out there. And it was almost too late at that point. But, uh, 
you know, Jerry Hoyt ended up winning the poll for the 55 race because, you know, hey, he wasn't part of any agreement. Nobody told me. 140.045 miles an hour, as a matter of fact, was the poll speed. At that time, it was the f- second fastest poll speed in the history of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. And as we would mentioned, an oil leak would retire him from that race, and he would finish in the 31st position after just 40 laps. But in 1955, he was on poll. In 1954, he did an interview. Here's Jerry Hoyt. Now we have a word with the driver in the pits in the south end of the pit area from Greg Smith. Greg, come in. Thank you, Sid. We have the driver of car 99, which was the Pelican Special, which went out just a bit earlier in the race. It's Jerry Hoyt, and uh, he hasn't been out of the car too long, so we're going to have to talk pretty loud to Jerry here so that he will hear us over the roar of all the engines, of course, the roar of 99 that he was driving. Jerry, what seemed to be the trouble? Well, I guess we probably blew a piston. We lost a lot of smoke out of the engine, and on the 130th lap, I was just coming in for a tire change, and, and we noticed it, so we pulled it in. How's the how are cars handling out on the track today? Is it a pretty good traffic oh, condition? It, it was really going nice. We were averaging right around 132 real easy, and just sitting out there riding, and, and I really thought we had a, a good spot. Do you plan to hop in another car now and relieve? I might. I'm ready to, in case anybody needs it, yes. Uh, the weather conditions not too bad as far as the drivers are concerned. Everything's really lovely. A little wind, but not too bad. Well, okay, Jerry. Thank you very much. We want to wish you a lot of success. Hope you do get another mountain, another one of these cars later Thank on. Thank you. That was Jerry Hoyt, who was a chauffeur for the Bellinger Special Number 99, which went out of the race just a bit earlier. And now as many of the drivers whose uh, own engines and cars perhaps have given out just a bit, they're looking around and will drive relief for some of the owners who have cars in here today. That would have been just after lap 130, by the way, in 1954 when Jerry Hoyt was forced to retire, as you heard, and finished in the 26th position in that race despite starting just four spots behind that, moving up just a little bit. Question is, and I don't know this answer and I apologize for it, did he get into a relief role? Because there were drivers in 1954 that did take relief. I'd honestly have to look at the box score. There were a lot of, um, I think he actually did. I think he got in Paul Russo's car, if I remember correctly. And I think he ended up finishing part of the race. And I think he did end up driving relief for Russo that year. Uh, Russo finished uh, in the eighth position and did, in fact, have relief help. So that would make sense. Yeah, I think he got in Russo's car that year. There was a lot of relief. And actually, as we talked about, I think a couple of times, everybody remembers 1953 as the hottest 500. But a lot of people believe 1954 was even a worse day. There was so many relief drivers because the humidity was so high that day. Incredible humidity in 1954. And that's why the 19, the, the famous photograph of Bill Vukovic of him, you know, basically passed out on the workbench. Uh, such an incredible humidity, oppressive humidity that day. You know, the interesting thing about drivers back then, Mike, we hear so much from people, the late, great Robin Miller, our friend, you know, Steve Shunk, others who were around towards the twilight, not of these drivers, but obviously the drivers that were connected to them. And you always hear the drivers of that era going, you know, moving forward into Parnelli and Bobby Unser and, and of course, Jimmy Bryan, who you know of my affinity. And we hear them labeled as heroes. And hero is a word that I think that we oftentimes overuse. But when you think about the era of the 1950s at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and you consider not only the danger and the risk that went into driving, but the physical demand of it because of how difficult it was. You know, it's not like these cars were all just running around with computers and power steering. 
the the strength, the endurance, the conditioning, the the psychological challenge of going out and running 500 miles in those cars and, and you know getting kind of battered around inside of the cars truly was heroic in terms of the level of bravery it would take to go out and run the race. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think all you have to do is listen to that famous interview that uh, Jim Rathman gives from the 53 race where they, they ask him about it and he's like, yeah, I just got awful hot from the heat, you know, and you could tell that he's, you know, he, he'd like to get back in the car, but he's just overwhelmed by the heat. The heat just got to him. So you're, you're right. I mean, it would just, it just took a, a, you know, a heroic effort. And, and that's why I think there's so much affinity for a lot of the drivers from the fifties in that era, especially. Hinkle is more than a field house in Indianapolis. It also is the name of the car that would finish in the top three, as a matter of fact, third in the 1954 Indianapolis 500. That car was piloted by Jane, uh, excuse me, John James McGrath, better known as Jack McGrath, who was born in Los Angeles in 1919 and then found his way to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in 1948. He would run for a number of races throughout Indianapolis, 48, 49, 50, and 51. When he got that third place finish, that would be the best finish he would have in his Indy career, matching it again in 1954. But speaking of Jack McGrath, once again, we have audio from 1954. And is this audio with Sid Collins from once he expired from the race or leading up to it, Mike? I think this one's leading up. Uh, I'd have to recall, but I'm pretty sure this is leading up to the race. Here is Sid Collins with Jack McGrath in 1954. We have alongside us now, in the third level of this pagoda, Jack McGrath from Inglewood, California. Born in L.A., I know our fans listening over KBIG out that way. Jack, I'll be glad to hear your voice. Congratulations on new records of one lap and four laps at the Speedway. Thank you very much, Sid. It was... It was quite unexpected, and uh, just so built up with uh, enthusiasm, I can't hardly talk. Well, Jack, you're a real veteran here at the track, having started here in 1948 in the old Scheffler Special car, working on through this Hinkle Special in 50, 51, 2, 3, and the Hinkle Special again today. How did it handle this afternoon? Well, we have a new car this year, Sid, and it just couldn't have been better. I don't believe that I could have pushed another ounce out of it, and uh, the car ran and performed just as just perfect. Jack, I know that sports riders, especially automobile sports riders around the country, will comment that this is very similar to Roger Bannister's four-minute mile on the dirt and on the cinders. You're driving over 140 at the speedway. How do you feel about it? Well, it's something that uh, you kind of dream in the back of your head someday you might be able to do, but it sounds so fantastic that I just can't hardly realize it yet, Sid. Well, actually, it was 141.033, and your fastest lap here on this track record was 141.287. Now, Johnny Thompson also broke the track record here before you did with your first sizzling lap today at 139.686. I want to know, Jack McGrath, when you got in your car and knew that you had that 139.686 to break, if you thought you would do it or not. Were you trying for a fastest speed? Yes, Sid, we were. We were uh, trying to break the record. Uh, we had been out earlier in the morning and ran 140 miles an hour, a little over, and we had traffic on the raceway, and, and we were pretty sure that we could we could break the the old record. Jack, this is the fifth time you'll be on the first row. This is uh, 
The fifth time, that's right. That's right. So, You've been in the third spot, that same spot, spot on the outside <laughs> in the first row for four years. That, and we moved over a couple of spots this year, thank goodness. Of course, actually, I, I don't want to put any damper here, but we still have some 12 minutes to go, and somebody, Troy Ruppman, a past winner's in the track now, could knock you out of that spot. You're yet. sure right as could be right there. But as long as you're on this mic, let's hope that you stay in that full spot. Well, I'll keep my fingers crossed. We will, too, for you. Thanks very much, Jack McGrath. You bet. The 1954 Indianapolis 500, Jack McGrath starting on pole, and as you heard Sid Collins mention there, started in third in 51, 52, and 53 before that 1954 qualifying breakthrough and then again matching his career best with a third-place finish. Jack McGrath, another of those names, Mike, that you hear a lot about, and I think that this is part of the fun of this show. We hear a lot about Jack McGrath. We hear a lot about, for that matter, Tony Bettenhausen because of the family carrying on that name. But some of those names, you don't realize or recognize their greatness in their moment. And so, therefore, I think it's important to go back and bring it back to life and kind of revisit the accomplishments of those drivers of the 50s. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he was one of the fastest drivers of that, that Roadster era. And so, it's it's great to have the opportunity to honor somebody like Jack McGrath and, and hear what he sounded like. Again, I mean, some of these guys, you don't even know what they sounded like and what their voices were. And so, uh, it's really cool to be able to, to honor a guy like Jack McGrath. And speaking of hearing things that you don't get to hear a lot, this next piece of audio is actually, you tell me, Mike, one of the more rare that you've been able to unearth. Yeah, this one is really rare. Uh, and I, I've actually shared this with some other people who said, wow, this that's a rare one, including including Donald. When I sent it to Donald, he said, well, that's a find. Um, this one, uh, people may have heard about Ed Elysian. Ed Elysian, of course, was a, was a well-known driver. He was involved in that terrible uh, accident in, in 1958 that uh, took the life of Pat O'Connor. And, you know, people have there's been a lot of stories about Ed Elysian over the years. Uh, some of them uh, embellished a little bit, uh, but you know, Ed Elysian was, he was a different character. I don't think there's any question about the fact that he was, he was a little bit different than, than some of the other drivers, but he, uh, you know, he, he got out of his car and actually tried to aid Bill Vukovic when Bill Vukovic had his accident. He, he tried to stop and help him because Bill Vukovic was his idol. He, you know, he loved Bill Vukovic, but he, um, he he didn't do a lot of interviews, and we actually have a very rare recording of, of Ed Elysian being interviewed by Daryl Weibel. Now, I, I bought some interviews on tape that Daryl Weibel did, and I was really fascinated to start going through them. And I said, well, wait a minute. Well, this is Ed Elysian, and I had never heard Ed Elysian's voice. So I was really excited to get this and, and share this with the people. Today. Well, let me ask you this, Mike, in what year this is from, and I'll tell you why I ask, because... Ed Elysian is one that I have always had a great deal of respect for because of exactly what you talked about. The fact that, you know, in the ultimate competition, and I realized that accident with Bill Vukovic was such that, you know, it wasn't like all of a sudden everybody's just, I mean, it was very obvious that it was a very bad crash from the get-go. But the fact that, you know, he, he, he tried to help. He did, in the moment, the humanity overtook him. But he did have some indiscretions. You know, this is somebody who had, uh, there were, allegations of of gambling debts there was a suspension for you know some money issues with fraudulent checks um i I think that he outside of the racetrack mike he certainly had his indiscretions that would have made him probably a very polarizing figure of his era oh he was exceptionally polarizing there's no doubt about it i mean he was involved with uh the race accident that took the life of bob swikert um, he was in a wheel-to-wheel duel with Swikert. 
and it ended up that uh, Swikert went over the rail and and suffered you know fatal injuries, and it ended up that that Elysian was exonerated, but he took a lot of blame for the accident, um, and and because he was involved in several of these type of things where he was involved was like the other car in several times where someone, there was a fatality involved, he started getting this reputation. I mean, he was involved obviously in the accident that took Pat O'Connor's life. And there was, there were other ones in a sprint car accident. And I believe it uh, in new Bremen here in Ohio. So it, it, it happened multiple times. And as you said, there was, there was some, some gambling debt allegations and, and, and passing bad checks. And so there was always this kind of cloud and, and he was, he, there, he was a difficult guy, as I understand it. He was kind of a difficult guy to get to know uh, because his his nickname around the uh, around the garage was Drool, uh, because people just didn't he didn't really provide much. There was, really wasn't much there. A lot of people said as far as depth, uh, but again, humanity did come out in in the accident with Bovukovic of him immediately trying to help his his idol, and he was. He was too distraught to attend the victory banquet the next night because of the fact that, uh, you know, we had lost Bill Bukovic. So he's definitely a polarizing character in the history of racing. And, and it's very, very rare to have the opportunity to hear from him because I know before I bought this particular set of recordings, I had never heard his voice on tape for anything. So um, I was glad to get this uh, opportunity to hear from him. And this is from what year? I believe it's from 56. Now, I haven't been able to date all of these particular uh, recordings, but I believe it's from 56. There's some other recordings. I think we're going to get to hear some other ones. Uh, He interviewed Jimmy Bryan and several other people. And and Daryl Weibel at this time seemed to have a pretty good relationship with several drivers because he's very friendly with him, with the different drivers on the tape. So I believe it's from 56, but I haven't nailed that down exactly yet. Daryl Weibel with Ed Elysian. Here is a fellow you've already met on the Terre Haute track at the Beagle County Fairgrounds, Ed Elysian. And Ed, I guess we'll never forget that great duel you and Johnny Boyd had in the feature, when was it, two years ago? Two years ago at the Beagle County Fairgrounds, terrific show. You You remember that? Yeah, I sure do. You drove the the track just like you like to see. You were up high, you were going through the turns, and you fellows just did a tremendous job. Ed Elysian, how did you happen to get started in this racing business? Well, I got out of service in 46, and uh, we used to run our roasters on the highway. And uh, nasty, that that didn't go too good with the uh, law enforcement officers and so forth. So we, uh, there was a promoter at Oakland Speedway decided to take all the guys off the street and let them run their roasters on the racetrack. So we went out there in October of 46 and ran our first race. Where's your home? Oakland, California. Your home is Oakland, California. Can you remember the uh, very first race you ever drove in? Well, that was it. The first, my first race, actual uh, competitive auto race, was at Oakland stadium in October 46. And that was in a roadster? Yeah, there was uh, Bob Swiker competing and two or three other fellows that race around here now. If you had your choice of racing, what kind would it be? Well, uh, personally, I like a, a championship car on this uh, speedway here. In other words, an Indianapolis type car on, on the uh, on these big bricks here. Yeah, huh? on the two and a half mile track here. If uh, you did such a good job on the dirt at Terre Haute, do you like that type of racing? Yeah, car? I, I always did like the dirt. I, in fact, I like the dirt more than pavement, but I. 
Well, I don't know. I, I, I like driving both of them. You just like to drive. That's what I think you like to yeah. do, buddy. What was your first reaction when you saw this big speedway for the first time? Well, I was surprised. I, I never imagined it being as big as it. I always knew it was two and a half miles, but when you get here, it just, it's so darn big, it just surprises you. I mean, you don't actually realize how big it is until you see it. Ed, when you look up at all those empty seats up there, can you imagine all the people that go in them until you actually see them filled? I mean, it seems impossible that all of them could be filled. That's right. You're, you're really amazed. Uh, when uh, on on race day to see as many people in there that there are. What's your best lap here at the Speedway up to now? Well, I ran yesterday. I ran uh, two or three uh, consistent laps at 143 and some odd tenths miles an hour. Ed, can you tell the difference between say 140 and 142 or 138 and 142? Well, gee, I don't know. Uh, it's actually hard to say. It just depends how well your car is working. If it's working real good, it's a known fact that you can go out there and run pretty good and, and not realize, I mean, not get the sensation of speed as you would if you were going uh, maybe a little bit slower and your car wasn't working too good. In other words, they give you a lot more trouble in the corners. But if your car is working real good, you can go fast and not realize it. Which going, machine are you in right now? I'm in the old Merz's car that Faulkner drove last year. Uh, we'd like to know the names of your car or your chief mechanic or anybody yeah, you'd like to mention connected with it. Yeah, it's Frank Delroy and uh, and uh, Frank Glidden from Minneapolis. All right. The car belongs to Fred Summers. Fred Summers. Hoyt Engineering. How much speed would you say it would take to make the starting lineup? I'd say uh, 140 and a half to make it. 140 and a half to make yeah. it. Some of the fellows are going pretty high on that thing, but uh, it comes down a little bit. <laughs> All right. Well, say, say we ask you this then, Ed. With ideal weather conditions, how fast could a man possibly go? Now, Russo went 146.6. Yeah, he'd probably, be, he'd probably be top man. I mean, I don't think there's any 270 around here that can possibly go with the Novi. Yeah, yeah beat the Novi. Uh, he went 146.5. He'll probably qualify somewhere around 147 miles an hour. At a Legion, we'd like to wish you all the luck in the world, boy, and thanks a lot for being okay, our guest. Thanks. When we come back, Paul Goldsmith on Beyond the Bricks. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. This is Beyond the Bricks, brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. Store on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Paul Goldsmith is one of those racers that would race on anything, two wheels or four. Did exactly that, as a matter of fact, with a motorcycle career before coming over, joining NASCAR and then USAC and then the Indianapolis 500. He qualified for his first race in 1958. In 1959, after his second qualifying effort, he talked to Sid Collins. And now here's another one of our qualifiers today, this time in the Dembler special, Mr. Paul Goldsmith, car number 99. 
Paul was born in Parkersburg, West Virginia, and now hails from St. Clair Shores, Michigan. I know our friends listening to us on WOHO in Toledo, Ohio. Be glad to hear how you feel today, Paul, after qualifying for your second annual 500-mile race. I feel real good, Sid. We're surprised that we got as good a time as we did. However, we was hoping for a little better time like everybody else. Well, now, last week you did a lap of 143.039, a couple up at 142.0, and today you took the checkered flag after qualifying at 142.670, just about the same speed, if not uh, right on the head. Now, why did you happen to take it today and wouldn't accept it last week? Well, last week uh, I sheared an oil pump key when we was running, and I almost cut the engine in half. Well, then you didn't come in last week because you were afraid the speed would not hold up. No, we were forced to come in. Did you have a lot of practice laps this week? No, we've had the car apart all week long. I had two laps yesterday, and then it started raining. Well, Paul Goldsmith, as a former national motorcycle champion back in 1953, a stock car champion, but I think uh, principally motorcycles, how does it feel to be out here on four wheels instead of two? Or are you on two most of the time anyway? Well, you're on three, Sid. You're <laughs> riding on the right front wheel and uh, the two rear ones. Well, now, your motorcycles didn't have three wheels with a small cab, did they? No, they didn't. What is the big difference? Well, Sid, uh, between the motorcycles and the cars, there isn't a whole lot of difference. Uh, you'd be surprised how much feeling uh, they are to the being the same. Uh, the, you slide a little bit in the corner, and uh, the motorcycles do the same thing, and it's so similar that it isn't funny. Well, you really go for speed holding a private pilot's license, and you also water ski, don't you, Paul? Yeah, I have a lot of fun doing both. And you were in the Merchant Marines during World War II. You're a very versatile individual. <laughs> I try to be, Sid. Well, actually, Paul, you were an unhappy uh, uh, member of the group that was mixed up on the first lap last year, so you've never really competed in a 500-mile in a race, even one lap, have you? Well, I think I probably hold a record here for running the shortest. Well, last year you came in 30th, so you were right there in the final three to go out. That's right. Starting in 16th, and this time you're just about the same spot in the field, probably. Well, I'm not sure. I didn't check how far back in the field. We won't know until this day is over in a few more minutes. Well, Paul, good luck to you on race day. We're happy to see you come back and try another chance at Indianapolis. Well, thank you very much, Sid. That was Paul Goldsmith from St. Clair Shores, Michigan, in the Demler Special, number 99. Now, fans, stay tuned for the greatest spectacle in racing. He was number 99. He is still living at the age of 97. Mike, a lot like those interviews from yesteryear that we listened to, we got a heart out and we're out of time. We could talk a lot longer about Paul Goldsmith. Might do it another time, but I appreciate all the audio and time tonight. Mike, it's been fun again. Absolutely. Sounds good. Thanks again for listening, everybody, to Beyond the Bricks. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time.